On Easter, I always enjoy taking some time to reflect back through the years on Easter memories. And one memory that comes up repeatedly dates back to early in our days in ministry. We were serving in Virginia Beach at Green Run Baptist Church. We had a tradition in that church on the Saturday before Easter that we had a community Easter egg hunt. And this particular year, we had literally hundreds of children that showed up. We had so many children that showed up. We were in a really densely populated area that we literally had to collect the eggs after the first group of children uh, searched for them and then went and put eggs back out on the field and had a second Easter egg hunt to accommodate uh, all the kids that were there. I think we ended up with over 200 children that showed up that day. I remember, though, that towards the end of all of the egg hunting that day, there was a mom who came in with her son. He was probably about 10 years of age, and he was blind. He had one of those canes with him that was red on the end to indicate that he could not see, and she inquired if we could accommodate him hunting eggs, and we said, yeah, we'll be glad to. So we waited till the churchyard, and it was a fairly large churchyard, was pretty much cleared out of the children, and we went out and we threw eggs on the ground, and then I went out there just to watch what was going to happen, and his mom went through there, and he took the cane that he had, and he began to take that cane and just move it back and forth on the ground trying to find eggs. And every time that cane would hit an egg, his face would just light up with his huge smile, and he would let out a little shout, and he was so excited, and then his mom would guide him with her voice to where the egg was, and he would pick the egg up and put it in the basket, stand up, take that cane, and begin again to go through that field looking to hit another egg. And I just watched him repeat that process over and over again until he had found all the eggs that were out there. And what I enjoyed the most was just watching the sheer excitement. It was like he was being just coming alive every time that cane would hit an egg. And as I think about that story, and as my mind goes back to that, it sort of to me is like, Easter has been this year. I felt like, at least for me, and maybe you feel the same way, that I'm blind. That somehow or another the traditions and the routines and the excitement and everything that normally is associated with Easter, it's like trying to search for it and find it and just feeling like we've been blinded by this virus. And it's like we got a cane and we're just trying to figure out where is Easter? Where is the joy? Where's the excitement? And you know something? Every time, in perhaps the darkness of these days, we touch Jesus. We are made alive. Every time we touch Jesus, we are made alive. We could be just like that little boy. We can 
in seemingly darkness, begin to smile and laugh and let out a shout because Jesus has made us alive. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Colossae talks about what it means for us to have been made alive in Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn there, and of course they'll be on the screen. Paul is writing to a group of Christians here, living in the small town of Colossae. He himself writes from a Roman prison cell. This is known as one of his prison epistles or prison letters. Apparently, as best Bible scholars can figure out, a very influential, charismatic leader had arisen in the church at Colossae who was commanding a lot of attention. He had developed a large following in the house churches in Colossae. The problem was he was using his personality to begin to spread false doctrine. And the doctrine that he was spreading, which was in many ways devouring, devouring who Christ is, lowering the esteem of Jesus as the only Son of the living God, as all supreme. And he was seeking to lure Jesus and put Jesus in at a different place. And so Paul writes to the church at Colossae, and he's saying to them, listen, you're getting in trouble. In fact, the word that he uses in the preceding chapter is a word that means you're literally being kidnapped and taken into slavery by this influential, charismatic personality, and you're buying into his false belief system. And you've got to get your act together. And you've got to realize who Jesus is, that he is supreme and above everything, And then you've got to realize that He and He alone has secured your salvation. And what does it mean for Him to have secured your salvation? It means that you and I are made alive in Christ because we participate with Jesus in His death and in His resurrection. And that Jesus has defeated on the cross and in His resurrection the powers of darkness And you and I can therefore live in His victory, in His power, and in the authority of Jesus. So Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. Having been buried with Him, that is with the Lord Jesus in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them 
in him. Now, I shared with you a few weeks ago when we were in the 27th Psalm that in Hebrew culture, they love to use word pictures. Greek culture, from which Western culture derives in the main, is very different. The Greeks loved abstract concepts. What you have in this passage of Scripture is Paul, who was a Hebrew, but also was steeped in Greek culture and in Greek language, is combining the two. So he's going to use abstract concepts here, what it means to be buried and raised with Christ, but he's also going to use word pictures taken from the day in which he lived. So let's move through this and follow me as we see the concepts and as we see the word pictures. First of all, Paul is going to say to us that we are made alive in Christ because it is with Christ. In fact, three times, verses 12 and 13, he is going to use the conjunction with. Now, it's translated with in our English Bibles. It is literally a Greek word that is used on the front of several words here three different times to mean with. Now, I like to describe it this way. The Greeks were very interested in the way they devised their language. They like to do what I call smush words together. And this is what I mean by that. They would take conjunctions often or uh, anything else they needed to try to express what they were trying to say and literally smush it into a word to sort of make up a word together. And that was totally okay in Greek language. Now, if you try that in an English class, you get red marks all over your paper. But with the Greeks, that was a great way to do it, to express. So what they do is they just take this idea of with, and he just keeps smushing it in over and over again. And what he's trying to say is we can identify with Jesus. We share with Jesus in what he has accomplished. Now, let's look at the first of the three withs. He says that we have been buried, verse 12, with him in baptism. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about there? First abstract concept we come across. We have been buried with him in baptism. Let's think about baptism. When someone is baptized, they go into the baptistry, which is right up here behind me, behind the screen, and I lure them into the water. And their body goes all the way into that water, and it is a reenactment of the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. That just as the body goes all the way into the water, even so... Jesus, when he died on the cross, was buried in that tomb. Now, Jesus, when he was buried, died a physical death. What does Paul mean here when he says that we have been buried with him in baptism? It means that when you and I come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, something dies within us, and a dying process begins in us. What dies within us? The old life dies. Everything that we were before we came to Christ dies when we come to know Jesus as our Savior. And a dying process begins in us, and that is that we begin to die to sin. We begin to die to the power of sin. We begin to die to the guilt of sin. We die to the shame of sin. When you and I come to Jesus, we all come to Jesus with some kind of track record. All of our disobedience, all the screw-ups, all the mess-ups, everything that we have done prior to coming to Jesus. We carry all that baggage and that mess in there. And he's saying here that when we trust Jesus as our Savior and we choose to follow Jesus, Jesus says, all that's dead. 
all of that dies. All of that gets buried as far as he is concerned. And then we die to the power of sin in our lives. Let me look at look with me to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Where it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look at that again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this human body, in the flesh, how do I live it? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you want to know the freedom, the liberation that comes from sin and shame and guilt and that old life, Jesus is where you find that liberation. Jesus is where we experience that liberation. And then after we have died to that sin, we begin to live in Christ, in His power. We're going to see that more in depth as we move through this passage of Scripture. Now, when you are buried, it says buried with Him in baptism. The idea there is that as you emerge from the water, the water has been surrounding you. Every time I bring some up out of that baptistry, they are just dripping wet with water. Water is surrounding them. It is dripping off of them. And what is that a picture of? When it says that we are buried with Him in baptism, we are literally putting all the way into that water and surrounded by that water, and we come up dripping, if you will, with all that water. It is a picture that we are in union with Christ. You see, the idea that Paul is communicating here is that not only have I been buried in my old life, sinful life has been buried, but what he's also saying is that we have been united with Christ. It's just like the water is all over us and dripping off of us, even so we have that much been united to Jesus. He is surrounding us. That's why Paul's favorite phrase that he uses over and over and over again in Colossians and in his other writings is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We are surrounded by Jesus. We've been placed all the way into Christ. And that means that we are marked that we belong to Jesus. Whatever we are not sure about in life from day to day, as a follower of Jesus, I know that I'm in Christ. That I am marked as His. That I belong to Him. The greatest reality of your life as a follower of Jesus is that you belong to Jesus. You are marked as His. Now notice verse 12. He said, you were also raised with Him. Again, notice the use of, of with. You were also raised with Him. What does it mean to be raised with Him? It means that we have been given new life with Christ. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is at work in us. That power that raised Jesus from the dead was not just power to be displayed in a garden tomb on that first resurrection Sunday. It was also power to be operating and working in us. You have been raised with Him, buried with Him in baptism. You've also been raised 
with him, he says, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, N.T. Wright is a writer, theologian that I love to read, and he says this, it is life before death before life. Life before death before life. And this is what he means by that. Follow me on this. He's saying that the new life we have in Jesus is life before death. In other words, you and I don't wait till we die to walk in the power of God and the love of God and all that God has for us. When I was a kid growing up, they used to talk a lot about, you know, you've come to know Jesus as your Savior, and then when you die someday, you'll go to heaven. We used to coin the phrase, there's going to be a pie in the sky and a sweet by and by. But it's so much more than that. Because the life that He has for us, this resurrection life that He's got for us to walk in His power, is not something that's just reserved after you and I die. It is life before death. He's got that life for us to live in and walk in and experience now. It is life before death. And then after death, we continue in that new dimension of life in His presence in heaven. Life before death, before life. Now notice what he says next in verse 12. In the powerful working of God. In other words, you were raised, buried with him in baptism. Then he says you were raised with him through faith. Where? In the powerful working of God. And the word powerful there is the word from which we get our English word energy. In other words, he raised you in the energy of who he is. God expressed, God released his energy in raising Jesus from the dead. And that is the same energy that God is at work in our lives. Sometimes people say, well, I'm so tired of life, or I'm going to run out of energy. And sometimes they hear Christians talk about, well, I've just got all burned out. Folks, the reason we get burned out and the reason we get worn out in living life is because we're trying to pull it off in our energy, not His. His energy never burns out. His energy never gives out. But my job is to stay plugged in to His energy. If I'm not plugged into His energy, then I am going to burn out and give out. If I stay plugged into His energy, then His energy is that resurrection energy that knows no end of what it's available to do. Now, notice what he says in verse 13. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Let's look at it. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together where? There's that conjunction again. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now, notice that he says in verse 13... You were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Now, what are trespasses and sins that he's talking about here? In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul outlines what those trespasses, what those sins are. Now, most of us like to keep sin real generic and general. Because if it's real generic and general, I don't have to deal with it and I don't have to be accountable to it. I love to ask Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin? 
What I don't like doing is having to acknowledge him, Jesus, would you forgive me of my criticism? Jesus, would you forgive me of my bad attitude? Jesus, would you forgive me of my refusal to forgive other people? Jesus, would you forgive me of my gossip, etc., etc.? I don't like having to get specific because when I get specific, I have to become accountable. So I just like to say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins, and then boop, it's over with, and out the door I go. What Paul does in Ephesians 2 is he says, I, we're not getting off the hook. We're going to get real specific about what the sin is. So this is what he says this sin is. These are what these transpasses are. First of all, he says it's following the world's way of thinking. Every time I approach situations and I approach life and I follow not the Bible's way of thinking, not God's way of thinking, I sort of think the world's way, I react to it the world's way, I pick up the world's way of handling it, I deal with it the way the world would deal with it, I deal with the way people and situations that don't follow Jesus, that's the way I handle it. He says, boom, you sin. You and I have sinned. We are following the world's way of thinking. Second, he says it's following the prince and power of the air. In other words, the prince and the power of the air is Satan, the devil. And when you and I begin to follow his lead and his direction and his thinking, then I'm falling in bondage to him and I'm following him. So am I following Jesus or am I following the prince and power of the air? That's something we have to pray about. We have to discern. How do I know what I'm following? Real simple, study His Word, read His Word, follow His Word, and you and I will walk in truth, and we will follow Jesus. Ignore His Word, forget His Word, and you and I will follow the prince and power of the air. One of the reasons the devil works overtime to keep us out of the Word of God is so if he can keep us out of the Word of God, we're going to follow him. If we stay in the Word of God, under the direction and teaching of the Holy Spirit, we're going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Third thing that he says, oh, Paul gets up in our business when he says this in Ephesians 2. He says those sins, those trespasses, are living in the passions of our flesh, living by the desires of our body and of our mind. And so what Paul is saying there is you and I begin to mess up in those sins and walk in those sins for which he has tried to set us free when you and I begin to live by their passions. In other words, the passions that I have in my mind and my body, the passions take over. They're guiding me. They're controlling me, etc., instead of Him. One of the ways our culture takes us in that direction today is, is just riding off of our emotions all the time instead of riding off of clear thinking from the Word of God. So I'm just sort of reacting to everything instead of being proactive out of the word in the way that I live, in the way that I handle situations. So I'm living out of those passions. And then the final thing he says is being children of wrath. I wish he hadn't put that in there. Because what does it mean to be a children of wrath? It means I'm walking around mad all the time. It means I walk around angry. It means I walk around holding bitterness and resentment. People look at me and it's more characteristic of my life that I'm mad and I'm upset and I'm tore up about stuff than it is that I'm at peace. If you and I are walking with Jesus, we're going to be at peace. And that peace is going to influence the people in the situations that are around us. If I'm walking in the power of sin, then I'm going to be causing disruption around me. And I'm not going to be causing peace. Children of wrath is the term that he uses. That's those sins that he is making reference to. Now look at verse 13. It says that God made us alive 
together. There's the third time, third preposition, with Him. God made us alive with Him. Where did He make us alive? Where does He bring us to life? With Him. Again, that union with Jesus. To use a modern phrase we all gotten terribly used to, there is no social distancing with Jesus. With Him, raised with Him, made alive together with Him. Now, how did He do that? Let's look at verse 14. It says, He counseled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, there's some beautiful imagery that's used here. This is where Paul is going to go from abstract concepts that we've just looked at So now he's going to go into word pictures. Follow me on the word pictures he's using here. He says, by counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In Paul's day and age, writing was very different than it is in ours. And he's taking this image, this word picture, right out of the way they did writing in his day. The writing of his day was not on sheets of paper like I've got right here. If you look at this sheet of paper, it's got words all across it. This sheet of paper, the ink has penetrated into the paper and will always be part of this paper. Because the chemistry of ink today that we use is designed to go on a sheet of paper and penetrate into a sheet of paper so that it becomes part of the paper. That's not the way it worked in the ancient world. The paper of the ancient world at the time Paul wrote was papyrus. Papyrus paper. I found out on the internet last night, you can order to this day forms of ancient papyrus paper. In other words, they have perfected and know how to do to make paper just like they did in ancient Egypt. So the paper of Paul's day was this ancient papyrus paper. Now, the paper was pretty tough and thicker than this. The ink of that day did not have the same chemistry as ink today has. And ink, when it was placed on the papyrus paper did not penetrate into the paper. It literally sat on top of the paper and dried on top of the paper. Now, in those days, if you owed a debt to somebody, they would take a piece of that papyrus paper, or several pieces, depending on the size of your debt, and they would begin to write with that ink on that papyrus paper, You owe so-and-so so much for this reason. You owe so-and-so so much for this reason. For example, if you take out a loan today to get a car or buy a house, what they would do is, if we were doing the same thing today, is you take a piece of this papyrus paper and you just start writing on top of it, you owe X thousands of dollars on this car on this date and you owe it to this lending company. So all the debts in those days were, were written on these papyrus papers and it again, the ink, outlining your name, what you owe, the whole bit, wrote on there, and it's set on top of that papyrus paper and dried. Now look at the word Paul uses here. It says, counseling the record of doubt of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. The word counseling there 
was a Greek word that was used in those days to describe what they did when the debt was paid. And this is what they would do when the debt was paid. They would take out the papyrus paper where their debt was written, and because the ink was just sitting there on top of it, they would literally scrape the ink off, and so you would just have a blank sheet of paper left. That's how you got rid of your debt. When he talks about counseling the record of debt, they just scraped all that ink off, and you were left with a blank sheet of paper. What Paul is saying here is, we're all as guilty as we can be when it comes to the law of God. We've broken the Ten Commandments, we have messed up, etc., etc., and we've got a record of debt against us. But what God did when Jesus went to the cross is God took out our papyrus paper with all of our record of debt, and He took the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and with the blood of Jesus and with His hand, He scraped it all off. And so you and I, in Christ, stand before Him with a blank piece of papyrus paper, so to speak. Our record of debt that stood against us is gone because God counseled it. He scraped it all off. Now, why did he do that? Not only to get rid of all that sin debt, but to give us a clean sheet of paper to start off with so that he can start writing his story of our lives on that new clean piece of paper. Notice it says it was nailed to the cross. What is the significance of that? Well, in the ancient world, once all your debts were paid, they would put a post up in town, and they would nail to that post a sign that said, so-and-so's debts have been canceled. So as everybody walked by that sign, they look up there and they'd say, oh, so-and-so was debt-free because they got their post up now that says that all their debt is canceled. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that the cross is the post that God put up to say, your sin is gone counseled. You're free. That's what the cross says. It's not just some nice symbol to hang around your neck or to put up on a church steeple. Jesus is saying that's the post in your life that tells you that you've been set free from sin. He nailed it to his cross. And when anybody walks by our lives and said, oh, you still got that problem. You still got sin. You still a mess. Look what you did. When Satan walks by and accuses us, say, hey, just look at the cross. Because the cross is the post that God put up in my life to say that Jesus took the debt and he canceled it. Man, he doesn't stop there. He moves on. He says that you and I share in his triumph. Notice verse 15. Another word picture he's going to give. It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities, that is the spiritual powers of darkness, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Now again, Paul is using another picture here. The word translated disarm means to strip something away. It means decisive action. Let me use, describe what Paul is talking about here. Another word picture. In Paul's day, he lived under the power of the Roman Empire. When the Roman legions would go out to battle and win their victories... They would come back into town, many cases back into the city of Rome. But they just didn't walk into Rome and say, hey, we want a battle. They had a very specific way that they came back into town. Now, remember back in those days, you had to do pretty much everything visibly because that's the way you communicated. They didn't have speaker systems and 
you know, podcast and all that to get the word out or an app that you could go to to find out what's going on with the Roman army. You had to watch them when they came back into town. That was sort of your living, walking app in front of you to figure out what had gone on. So everybody watched these Roman legions as they came back. This is how they'd come back into town. First of all, the general who had won the battle would head the military procession and he would be seated upon a white stallion. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but you go into the book of Revelation. How is Jesus pictured when he comes again? On a white stallion. They are picking up that imagery from the Roman Empire. So the general comes in on the white stallion. When they saw the general on his white stallion, they knew he had won the battle. Second behind him would be his army in all of their military glory and in their uniforms and in all of their array. And then behind them would come the king and the leaders and the people who had been conquered. But this is what they did with the folks who had been conquered. The folks who had been conquered, when they went in and they took the city, would be dressed in the dress of their culture. Now, dress in those days was extremely important, even more so than it is in ours, because how you were dressed communicated your position and your authority. So, for example, a king would be dressed in his robes with his crown on his head to say, I am the king and I rule. So this is what the Romans would do. Before they lined these folks up that they had conquered to get in this parade, they would take the king and they would strip his robes off of him. They would take his crown and throw it away. And he would be put in beat-up rags, almost naked. They would go and do that to the whole army of the conquered foe. So as the Roman people watched this conquered nation come into town, they would see our general on his stallion, victorious. They would see our troops arrayed in all their military might, marching behind. And then they would see this crowd come in. And it was a public spectacle. They were stripped of all their authority in their clothing. They were in rags. Some of them were just about naked. And it was a shameful thing to be a conquered foe and be in that parade going at the back end of that military processional. Now notice what he's saying here. He stripped the rulers and the authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. This is what he is saying. This is the picture that he's giving us. That when Jesus went to the cross, and when Jesus died, and when Jesus rose again from the dead, what Jesus did is he set up his processional. And his foes, Satan, the powers of evil, The demonic powers, the rulers and the authorities were stripped of their authority, stripped of their power, stripped of everything they had, and he put them to an open shame. If you can imagine with me as Jesus hung on the cross, he had been stripped, and he's hanging there bleeding and dying. And the demons in hell at first must have thought, Man, we have put him to a shame. But as that blood began to drip from his feet and from his hands and his side, it began to dawn on them 
He's turning the tables on us. Every drop of blood stripped more power away from them. When he said it is finished, it meant that they were finished. And he had triumphed over them. As someone has observed, the cross was Jesus' victory chariot. The resurrection was his victory lap. We've been made alive because he has triumphed over the powers of darkness. Now you're listening to me and you say, Pastor, that sounds great. But why in the world am I in so much bondage? Why in the world do I keep falling back in the same sin patterns if the powers of darkness have been defeated? Why do I see so many pockets and places where Satan seems to be in control? Because we are buying into a lie. If I've been defeated, but I want you to think I've got power over you, what do I do? I lie to you and tell you that I am stronger than you are. And I get you to buy into my lie. And you see, Satan has done a tremendous job of getting us to buy in to his pack of lies. But we don't have victory over sin. We don't have victory over guilt. We don't have victory over shame. We don't have any victory that people, that parts of our family that communities, wherever it is, are living in his bondage and have no choice but to live in his bondage because we have bought into his lie. And if we will live in Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, and quote it back to Satan and live like this is true, we will begin to walk in the victory and we will be made alive in him. I want to take you back, as I conclude this morning, to the story that I told the children earlier. In that story, those disciples, those two disciples were walking on that road to Emmaus that day in darkness. They didn't even know where to put their cane to hit the truth. And Jesus walked up beside them, and he began to talk to them. And they began to listen. Not to defeat, not to darkness, not to blindness, not to fear, but they begin to listen to Jesus. And he set them free, and he made them alive. How are we made alive? Two things we got to do. We got to walk with Jesus, and we got to listen to Jesus. Walk with Jesus and listen to Jesus. And He will make us alive. I want you to bow your heads with me. If possible, wherever you are, close, out, close your eyes to close out all the distractions. And if you have never asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and to be your Savior. I want to ask you and I want to invite you right now to say to Jesus, Jesus, I want you to save me. I want you, Lord, to take out my sin. Lord, my, my papyrus sheet of the story of my life is so loaded with messes and failures and sin and screw-ups and displeasing you and you name it, Lord, and I just want to ask you to scrape it all clean. 
And I want to walk, Lord, in the victory that you got for me. Jesus, I want you to raise me up. I'm flat on my face. I am all messed up in my sin and disobedience. Jesus, I want to ask you to cleanse me and set me free. I want to belong to you, Jesus. I'm tired of belonging to this other mess. I want to belong to you, Jesus. Come into my life. Right now, I. He longs to make you alive. As you pray, Valshara is going to share a song with us. And then I will share with you how you can grow in a relationship with Jesus.